out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Jesus, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the master. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill, fulfill the word that he had spoken. But those, those you gave me, I have lost not them. Then Simon Peter and his sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your short sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the bandaged soldiers and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and found him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He was high priest of the king. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for this people. This is the way. It was May 10th. 1970 when Leslie Sabo Jr. sacrificed his life in order to save his fellow soldiers in Cambodia. He was in Company B of the 101st Air Force, Air Force Division there in Cambodia serving during the, the Vietnam War. Leslie was only 22 years old and his company was ambushed by an enemy and it was a very frantic and dangerous situation. A grenade landed near towards where Leslie was, and it wounded a comrade, and so, uh, and, uh, rather, toward a wounded comrade, and so he quickly picked up the, the hand grenade and threw it away, all the while shielding his buddy from the blast, which he absorbed in his own body, wounding himself terribly. Um, knowing then that he was seriously wounded, Leslie immediately went out and charged towards that same enemy bunker, taking more fire from automatic weaponings, no, weapons, knowing that his life is going to soon end. There is an official army report, which I read this week, which says this, that, that, that Leslie continued to crawl toward the enemy emplacement, and waiting as long as possible, he threw a grenade in the bunker, silencing the enemy, but also sacrificing his own life, close quote. Leslie died a hero in May of 1970, and more than two dozen men or more were living because of his sacrifice of his life. Now, there was a commendation, of course, printed with regard to Leslie from the commanding officer soon after that, but unfortunately, it was lost. And only recently, 40 years later, did his surviving spouse, Rosemary, his brother, and his parents discover what a true hero Leslie had been. 
There was a moving ceremony a year ago in May when Leslie's widow was presented the Congressional Medal of Honor 40 years, 42 years, I would say, after her husband, a husband of only one month's time, had perished. And in the presence of that company, there were some two dozen men whose, their, whose lives had been saved because of Leslie's sacrifice. Rosemary was reported to have said later, I know a piece of cloth and a metal won't bring him back, but my heart beats with pride for Leslie. That's a great story, isn't it? It's a moving story. It's stories like these that make us proud on Memorial Day to honor the men and women who have given their lives in service to our country. And it causes me to wonder, what is it about these selfless acts of heroism which deeply move us? Perhaps you know of stories like that. Maybe there are stories like that in your own family history. What is it that touches us deeply about these selfless acts of heroism? What is it that makes us want to applaud or, or cry or, or pause for a moment of silence when we think of the sacrifice when one gives his life for the sake of another? Why does it strike such a resonant chord deep in our hearts? Because it's not just military acts of bravery that gain our admiration, is it? Consider, for, for, for instance, some of the many stories and movies which celebrate similar acts of heroism, of sacrifice for the sake of others. You remember Braveheart, don't you? In that movie, William Wallace endures a torturous death in order to seek freedom for his beloved Scotland. Or how about A Tale of Two Cities? You read it in high school probably, and if you recall at the end of that, Sidney Carton gives drugs to his friend in jail and takes his friend's place in jail so that he will take the guillotine in order to ensure that the woman he loves doesn't lose the husband that she loves. And he dies with the words, I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die on his lips, giving his life. And it's a moving um, ending to that beautiful story. Or how about Casablanca? Remember that movie? In that movie, Humphrey Borgart's character startles us when he arranges an escape from Morocco during the Second World War. And instead of climbing onto the plane himself, what does he do at the end? But he sends the woman and her husband, Laszlo, on a plane out of Casablanca. Or how about the Chronicles of Narnia and the first story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan the Lion lays down his life for rebellious Edmund and thus secures freedom for him and also brings about new creation into a world which had been ruled by the wicked queen, the white queen. Or how about more recently, some of you, the latest Batman movie. I couldn't, I have so many examples of this. The latest Batman movie, The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises. Have you seen it? No? Well... I'm going to ruin the ending for you right now. Let's just say that there is a, an heroic act of sacrifice. Has anybody seen that movie? There's an heroic act of sacrifice at the end of that movie. Am I right, guys? When he takes out the bomb, right? I won't say any more than that. You can watch that movie. These are just in order to save Gotham. These are just a few examples, and there are many more. There's something in our hearts which craves these kinds of stories, which looks for these kinds of stories, stories of redemption, stories of sacrifice, stories of love laid down for the sake of a greater cause, stories like Leslie Sabo's story when he instinctively gave his life to protect his company, even though it wasn't even hardly known by anybody except those who experienced it for some 
40 years later. Why are these such compelling tales to us? Maybe we're just hopelessly sentimental. Maybe we just invent stories with good endings. Maybe we just can't stand the truth that we actually only end as fertilizer. That's the ultimate goal of reality. Maybe that's, we just need something to blind us from that ultimate reality. Maybe that's the case. We desperately want things to turn out even though they never do. So we invent stories which pretend that death is futile. Maybe that's why we crave these stories. But you've seen it. You've, saw, you've seen a play. You've watched Les Miserables. You've gone to a movie. You've read a book, and it's like, oh, this is a great story. I am drawn to this story. Is there a realness to that, or is it pure sentimentality? Maybe these stories captivate our imagination, elevate our hopes, and, and bring meaning out of sacrifice because they highlight a larger, deeper, grander truthful reality. Maybe these stories tell a truth which is fundamental to our souls, and best of all, ultimately true. It is my settled conviction that, yes, these stories, both fictional and literal, are simply smaller tales which tell of a grander and greater epic, the ultimate reversal, the supreme sacrifice, the good story, or in older English, the good spell, the God spell, the ga spell, which is the etymology of that word, the story of Jesus himself who sacrificed his life so that we, his lost children, could be rescued. Why do we crave stories of sacrifice and rescue? Because there's a truth in our lives that knows we need it. And isn't it great to believe that that story is true? I believe we love these smaller stories because they resonate to a chord which is deep in our hearts of wanting someone to rescue. There's a bigger truth, a bigger story, and it is that story which Tammy read for us today, which our study of John takes us to today. This is the opening sequence of Jesus' final climax, his glorious moment when he, as it were, says, there's a hand grenade, I'm taking it for the sake of the company. This is that story. This is that story that in our study of John has brought us on this memorial week, and I'm thankful that as we've come into these holidays, we've been able to keep going on our study through the Scripture and find a way of adapting it to the realities of our culture as well. Because this is the time when that story opens up. We've been spending an intimate evening with Jesus, with His, final, with his disciples. Um, and uh, we've listened last week as he prayed to the Father, but now we see him step out of that place of contemplation, step out of that place of, of retreat with his disciples, and now he steps forward, he walks into the garden, he faces his accusers, and he walks confidently towards a death which is meant to bring us freedom. It's a dramatic confrontation. Let's take a look at that story this morning under four headings. Four headings as we'll look at it together, okay? A I want you to see that it is a suggestive setting, a stupendous claim, a surprising reversal, and a substitutionary result. Let's take a minute and consider this under those four headings. First of all, the suggestive setting. We want you to see, first of all, that the action occurs in a suggestive setting. What is the setting? We found it. You may not even notice it. We found it in, verse eight, uh, in the first, uh, first couple of verses of our text. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was 
a garden. This dramatic confrontation begins in a garden. That's the setting. It's a suggestive setting because if we've been following this gospel closely, we realize that no detail is extraneous in in John's gospel. John is a very careful writer, and we've seen from the very beginning, and those of you who are guests today, you won't have a chance to see this all the way through, but, but we have seen from the very beginning that John patterns this gospel after the book of Genesis in the same way that Genesis begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John's gospel begins with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. And as in Genesis, it says God's Word said, let there be light at creation. So too in John's gospel, when this Word of God comes, He is the light in whom there is no darkness. He is the Word of God who has come to tabernacle, to tent, to live, to become one of us, and to live among us. Clearly, as we have seen, the plan of John's gospel is to let us see that Jesus is the Word made flesh, and that in Him we have the beginnings of new creation which He comes to bring, the restoration of what went wrong at the beginning of history. So John tells us that at this point, critical moment in the gospel, that Jesus' arrest and betrayal take place in a garden. So let's think about the book of Genesis for a moment. What happened in a garden in the Genesis story? Well, what we see is that in the same way that Jesus experienced betrayal in this garden at this point, did not a betrayal occur in the garden in the third chapter of Genesis? Wasn't it a beautiful garden when the first Adam and Eve encountered, Adam and his wife encountered evil in the form of a serpent? They succumbed to it, and humanity as well as all of creation have been out of joint ever since. Now here in this garden, we have Jesus, who is the perfect man, the Word made flesh, and other writers call Jesus the second Adam, the new Adam. We see this Jesus in another garden. He too will encounter evil just as Adam and Eve did. But what will happen in his story? Instead of being overcome by evil, he will conquer evil and thus bring about restoration and renewal to our beautifully broken world. That's why as we look at this sequence here, I don't know how carefully you listen to it, you see Jesus majestic even as he submits to these soldiers. You see what happens? Yes, soldiers come to take him, but what happens when they do? They say, he says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. What do they do, these battle-hardened soldiers? They fall to the ground in his presence. This is almost comical if it didn't have a truth in it. We see Jesus walking to his captors, and they're falling down. Yet, so he goes with them, but who's really in control of that scene? Jesus is. Then later, we see him go before the false high priest Caiaphas and Annas, his father. But we've already heard Jesus in just the 17th chapter pray that magnificent high priestly prayer. Jesus is more of a priest than those false priests. He's walking into them, and yes, they're going to condemn him, but only because he lets it happen. So he is more powerful than the Roman soldiers. He is more priestly than the, 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 the chief priests. And then he goes to see 
Pilate, and later on we'll see in this chapter. But as we see, it is not Jesus who is fearful. Who is fearful? Pilate is afraid. Why is this Roman general? He's from the battlefield, now a governor, a procurator. Why is he afraid? You see, John, he's giving us this picture of the magnificent Jesus who's walking into this garden to encounter, what am I not seeing? Oh, yeah, got a raven over my shoulder. There you go. Get entertainment if you get bored with the message, right? <laughs> we see this Jesus walking in to that place. You know, and even when Jesus dies, he does not die as a victim, does he? While he's on the cross, John tells us he takes care of his mother. Son, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. And he says, I'm thirsty. Like a man completing a lifelong project, which indeed he has on the cross, he says, it is finished, and he gives up his spirit. You see, death for Jesus is a vocation, not a tragedy. See, we see Jesus in the garden, and to use St. Paul's expression, he is the new Adam, stepping forward to meet the old Adam, saying, it's time to take back this territory. That's what's going on underneath this. Do you see that? That's what's happening in this story. Yeah. He is the Word of God, speaking the Word to a world in, cor- in chaos. He is the light of the world, shining before the lanterns and tortures of those Roman soldiers. His light will shine in their darkness, but their darkness will not fundamentally extinguish it. By setting this scene in the garden, Jesus reminds us that Jesus is the ultimate hero. He is the true victor. He is the heroic sacrifice. He will give His life to rescue all creation and all humanity and free us from the tyranny of our self-centeredness and our death-producing behaviors. He is not a victim. He is a victor, Christus victor. He is the hero who gives His life so the others can be saved and all the people clap, right? This is what John is saying for us. Hopefully it resonates in your heart because that's what Jesus has come to do. Why do we gravitate toward these stories of victory and sacrifice for the sake of others? Because these stories ring a chord in us because there is a greater fundamental story about a deeper loss, a deeper alienation, a sense of homelessness when Jesus has come to bring home back to his people. That's the setting of the story. Ready for number two? I get excited about that. Jesus makes a stupendous claim. Jesus makes a stupendous claim. In verses, we see that he, uh, the Judas who knows where this place is. So Judas, verse 3, has procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. He goes with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing, what would hap- knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom seek ye? Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what's going on here? Now, some of you Bible students know what I'm going to say right now. If you read your Bible, the only way we can read it in English is their aunt, Jesus' response to their question in verse 5. It would make no sense to us if we read it the way it was written in the original language. 
For us, it needs to say, I am he. But for them, what he really said was just two words, I am. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but what Jesus did in that moment is he took upon himself the holy, divine name of God. This is why those, shep- those soldiers fell back. It's like for a moment his glory was opened up, and Jesus took upon himself the name of, who do you seek, Jesus of Nazareth? Yahweh. I am. Jesus is using the term which they understood very well and which John has been talking about a lot in this gospel. In the eighth chapter, John, Jesus said, before Abraham existed, I am. All the way through this text, there are many I am's. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And here in the 18th verse, I am. This harkens back to Moses' encounter with the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You remember when Charlton Heston ran into the, you remember that, right? Yeah. And what is the name that he has given? I am. What does this mean? God is simply saying, I simply, in the Old Testament, saying, I simply am. I have no beginning, no ending, no because I am. There is no ending to this because I'm not Uh, I I just exist. God is the eternal, ever-present, self-existent one. He depends on no one and no thing for anything. God does not depend on any persons. All things, all life, all people emanate from His life. In Him is life. I am. Now, this makes sense when you think about God. After all, if, if God was... If God was dependent on anything, that thing itself would be greater than God. So it makes sense that God is the ultimate, ever-present, always-existent one. But this is the stupendous part. It's one thing if we have a burning bush with a, a theophany, an experience of God in the desert. But what we have here is Jesus, a living, breathing human being, saying, I am. He's calling the divine name to himself. He takes the divine name. Can he really be serious? Can Jesus, this flesh and blood person, really believe that he is not just similar to God, but God? That's what he is saying. That's what John has been saying he said all the way through this gospel. Uh, And, and, you know, So this makes Jesus distinctive among all religious leaders, you know. This is a problem for us today. We want to put Jesus on a shelf with all other religious teachers. We put them among them. We say, okay, pick and choose. They're all good. That's what our culture wants us to do. But Jesus will not let us do that. There are only two options. Either, because other religions say, this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. Here is the way, here is the truth, here is the life. But Jesus says what? You know what he says. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Do you realize how megalomaniacal that is? Whatever it is. <laughs> Jesus, who we know to be humble and meek, makes the most stupendous and outlandish claim in all of history. It's either true or it's false. If it's true, then that means Jesus is superior to every religious leader. 
and he deserves our allegiance. We bow before him, and we say, you are Lord. Command me in every area of our life. But if it's not true, Christianity and Jesus is inferior to every religion. We have this megalomaniac, I can't say the word, we have this nutcase, really, who's claiming to be God. We can't take that seriously. You know, he should be disdained. This is, I say this because there are so many people who want to have a tepid, tepid middle-of-the-road response to Jesus. They want to say, you know, Jesus is a good guy, a great teacher, just like so-and-so and so-and-so and put it all together. But you, it simply cannot be done if you look seriously about what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said himself, before Abraham existed, I am. What does he mean? Was he there when it? Yes, he does mean that. And he says, I've sent you prophets, and you kept ignoring the prophets. And what did he mean he sent these prophets? What is he talking about? Except unless it's true that Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, if you don't believe what I'm saying, listen to what Bono of you two said. I found this. I mean, if it's not good enough when the preacher says it or the Bible says it, maybe if Bono says it, it's true. <laughs> I'm joking. But I found this fascinating interview in a book that I read uh, uh, about Bono. It's a, it's a fantastic book, really. When Mishka Asayas, I think that's how you say his name, had a series of interviews with Bono. And it's, it's called Bono in Conversation with Mishka Asayas. But here's a certain section which I pulled out of that book. Asayas said to him, to Bono, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, don't you think that's far-fetched? Bono replies, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christian story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, had a lot of good things to say along the lines of others like Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Christ says, no, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So we are left with really this. Either Christ is who he said he is, or he is a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire globe, one half of the human race, has had its history completely changed by a nutcase for me, that's far-fetched. Bono. Well, if Bono said it, maybe it's true. <laughs> you see, this is a stupendous claim. Now, you may not know whether you believe it or not, but don't stay stuck in investigation. If it's true, we must bow before this Jesus, God in the flesh. If it's not true, please don't pretend to like Jesus because he was a nutcase or he was a liar, or he is, as we believe, the Lord. Well, let's see thirdly, the soldiers experience a surprising reversal. The soldiers experience a surprising reversal. I mean, this is a, a really a surprising response. When Jesus said, verse 6, to them, I am he, they drew back. They drew back and fell to the ground. What's this about? What's going on here? Why are they afraid of Jesus? What's going on? Well, you see what happened when Jesus sort of uncloaked his glory for a moment. It was overwhelming to these battle-hardened, brave 
soldiers and they fell on their feet. The reality is when Jesus hears, when they hear these guys say, when these guys hear Jesus say, I am, they're knocked out. This is an example of a very important truth. The reality is none of us can stand in the presence of God. When God came to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel fell flat. When the temple was dedicated in 2 Chronicles 5, the glory of the Lord came on the temple, and the priests could not get in. They lost their footing. They couldn't. When Peter saw Jesus in the catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, he fell at his feet and said, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. When Isaiah saw the vision of God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, woe is me, for I am undone. I am coming apart. I am coming apart, he really seems to be saying. Jesus is flexing a little bit here. Even this glimpse knocks the legion flat. When we're in the presence of superlative, there's no response but to bow down. We can't. We can't help it. You know, it's, there's, there's stupid examples, but I remember walking on the baseball field at Diamondbacks one time when I was there, and I was able to be there in the center field, and I played a little bit of baseball. I wasn't a great ball player, but I played until I was about 40 and loved to play men's baseball, and, and I fancied myself a pretty decent athlete, but when I stood out there on that field, I mean, I wasn't playing or anything. I just stood out. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is a lot bigger place than I've ever played in. This is a lot more awesome experience. And you see, when you're in the presence of something way better than you, someone way better than you, you can't help but be a little bit cowed down. That's what happens. We, in the presence of God, nobody keeps their footing. Remember when you were a kid and we used to drink out of the hose? I know you, you don't know, you think you'd die, but you really, we survived. Remember when you'd play a trick on your friend and you'd go and you'd turn that hose up high when they had it in their Did any of you ever do that? What happens? You can't handle it. You're overwhelmed. You're calm. You're even perhaps injured if they got it just right. Why? Because the hose is mad at you? No, you're too small. Your mouth's not big enough. What's coming is bigger than you. That's why we that's why God's presence destroys us, kills us, knocks us down, makes us lose our feet. If the earthquake comes, you fall. It's just bigger than you. God is bigger than you. And at that moment, those soldiers knew they were in the presence of something bigger than them, and it knocked them to their feet. Well, I have lots more to say, but you see, if these hardened soldiers couldn't keep their footing in the presence of Jesus when he let just a glimmer of his glory shine through, you know we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God clothed as we are. And it's not because God hates us. It's because we just can't handle it. Remember when you, remember when you have a little kid and, and they say to the dad or the big uncle, hit me. And so you're there and you, hit me. You know? No, hit me hard. You ever done this? And you know what you do. You don't really hit them hard because they couldn't handle it, Right? It would be cruel. It'd be devastating. Whack, you know, this eight-year-old boy, you know, you get arrested. What's the problem? Why would, would giving them my full strength hurt them so Because they're too small. We're too small. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not that God hates you. He loves you. That's why he doesn't destroy you. But look what happened. God came as one of us in our little eight-year-old body to be one we could identify with. Isn't that beautiful? So this is why they 
bowed before him. They couldn't help it. Well, don't fool yourself if you think you're going to stand in the presence of a holy God all by yourself. God who loves you more than you love yourself, you will be destroyed by that experience. It cannot, you have to find another way. And that's how we see finally, and I'm out of time, but I'm not out of words, the substitutionary death of Jesus. Fourth, Jesus offers a substitutionary death. Jesus says to them, I am the one you seek, verse 8. If you seek me, let these men go. Let these men go. You see, before he walks off with those soldiers, what does he do? He protects his disciples. What are the sol- Why did 200 men come? Why? And the soldiers are probably at least 200 men. Why were they? Because if you're going to capture the leader, what are you going to also capture? The followers. They were in mortal danger at that moment. They would have been arrested, and you would never have heard their names again. That's the way it would have gone. But Jesus says to them, you're looking for me. Let these guys go. You see, in fact, literally, he says to them, forgive them. You see, Jesus heroically gives his life so those disciples can be set free. In fact, he said, forgive them not just right there, but a few hours later on the cross, he looked not just at his disciples, but at everyone. He said, Father, forgive them. This is the beauty of Jesus' historic sacrifice. It was to set us free that he gave us his life. He died so that we might live. Jesus died. Who died? God in the flesh died. And in verse 14, we're reminded that one should die for all the people. Jesus died our death so we could live new life. Are you glad? That is the ultimate Memorial Day celebration, to say to Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. Yes, we love stories about sacrificial heroes. We rejoice that after a 40-year delay, Leslie Sabo was finally honored for his heroic sacrifice. It was, as I said, on May 16th last year when the award was finally presented to his widow. And present at that ceremony were two dozen men from his company, men who owed their life to the man whose life was given. And there was a rare breach of protocol that occurred when these men were recognized by the President of the United States. There was an impromptu, spontaneous standing ovation that everyone gave to these 12 men these two dozen men, 24 men, and yet it wasn't really for them, was it? It was for the one who had saved them. Apparently, there was something powerful and poignant in seeing those veterans whose lives were saved by the sacrifice of another. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are like one of those veterans. You have a life which has been given to you by Jesus. And if you have not responded to his gift, why wait any longer. Judgment is coming. Jesus took your judgment so you don't have to. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us, for accepting our place
so that we could have new life. If we're already a follower of you, I pray that you'd help us to live with ever gratitude to the one who gave his life for us. And if we are not yet, may this be the moment when we finally lay down arms, put down our torches and our lanterns, our excuses and our pride, and bow before the one who humbled himself to save us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.